You are now listening to Chunky Glasses, the podcast. Uh, if this is your first time listening, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, if this is not your first time listening, uh, I am shocked and amazed and grateful that you are still tuning in. Uh, so I know I said that the very next podcast that we did after the uh, Louis Weeks one was going to be uh, Pink Floyd, talking about the new album that was out. Uh, we will be doing that later on this week uh, because right now uh, we have an interview with uh, one of my uh, sort of musical heroes, probably one of yours, at least uh, most of you listening to this are probably a fan, uh, talking about one Nels Klein. Uh, currently, uh, main gig is the guitar player for Wilco, a band that I think everybody uh, universally sort of loves uh, around these musical parts. Um, also has a long, long career in history playing uh, not just a sideman or other bands or in other projects, but in the jazz avant-garde uh, fusion, whatever you want to call it, uh, sort of out there scene. Uh, he is a remarkable musician for any of you who have seen any him in any capacity. Uh, and uh, he is a very unique musician and a very unique voice uh, that is indistinguishable, I think, from anybody else. Um, so we had the chance to talk to Nels, uh, went up to the Atlas Performing Arts Center on Saturday, uh, sat down with him for about an hour. Uh, turned out to be a fantastic conversation. Uh, so I'm going to let you hear that right now. Uh, I want to thank... Uh, Russ's tour manager uh, he, he showed up and they were sort of under the gun. Uh, still made time for us. I might as well thank Nels. Uh, you know, just a very, uh, very sweet guy uh, and knows a whole lot about music and loves to talk about it. Uh, so I think right now what I'm going to do is shut up and let him talk about it. Uh, so here you go. Uh, this is episode number 89 of Chunky Glasses, the podcast. And this is our interview with uh, Nels Klein. It happens here. And it finishes here. Two men enter. One man Nearly a two-word review of just a shit sandwich. That right there he is a wonderful power. Um, yeah, so it's essentially just a conversational type of interview. Okay, talk, great. My favorite. Talk, literally talk about whatever you want. Great. But uh, you have to start me on something because it, like, usually ask me one question, two hours go by. All right. All right. Well, then that's good because uh, the question I have, I think, is is will actually facilitate that. Okay. You've made a career out of um, like doing good things with sometimes uh, magical things, sometimes abusing this six-string instrument, the guitar. Uh, so you started playing when you were younger, you know, with you. You have a twin brother. Yes. Why the guitar? Jimi Hendrix. Is that it? That was when it, when it really hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was enchanted with the sound of 
rock and roll and the electric guitar mm-hmm. before that, particularly uh, the birds yeah. were a, for a fixation of mine when I was about 10. This would have been maybe 1965, 66. Um, but then I heard Manic Depression by Jimi Hendrix, and that was you you said magic it yeah. was it was yeah. it was magic it was electricity it was uh otherworldly yet of the world it was everything i never thought i would imagine and experience and so i said that's it at that point i wanted to play guitar for the rest of my life not to play like jimi hendrix right. in fact i was horrible like all my growing up i was just a terrible guitar player and I played with two fingers <laughs> and and i uh as i got older I became more self-conscious, which usually uh, comes along with, uh, you know, puberty, sprouting hairs and things. I took a more modest path for myself and thought of uh, Jimi Hendrix as being shamanistically unapproachable, shall we say. Um, So I never tried to play like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I took, a, I guess, a more sort of melodic blues uh, infused path, Mm -hmm. I thought. Which it's a was, good path to start on guitar. Very, Both of us are guitar players. It was very so. Dwayne Allman yeah. inspired yeah. at that point, uh, and many, many other guitarists as well. But, but you know, Hendrix, you yeah. know, completely lit me up. Did so you ever that, get to see him? I did not. Did not. No, and in fact, got very close more than once. But I was only you know twelve and thirteen. Yeah, and uh, couldn't get there. Uh, missed him in New York City in 1968 by mere hours because we were flying my family was flying out the the day that he was playing in central park Uh um with the experience and with the young rascals opening as i recall but then he played devonshire downs in the san fernando valley which was basically the site of the state fair or something in those days and he played the forum which is the sort of famous bootleg yeah kind of happy i missed that gig in a way because there's something mildly depressing about what i hear in that which is you know the later Hendrix, him apologizing for playing instrumentals, telling him everybody they can just go in the lobby and, and get sodas or right, whatever. Right. You know, and that would have been so vast yeah. and so huge and everyone was smoking weed or whatever. And I would have just been thinking, where, what do I do? Where yeah. is he? Is he there? He's like so far away. But anyway, I would love to have seen Jimmy, but I never did. So Hendrix sort of turned you on. Yep. And then... You played for years. You, um, your main career. I think most of our listeners will like know you from Wilco, but you had twenty year career, like essentially like jazz. if you can call it a career. Well, no, I mean, like <laughs> how, how many, al- how, many albums, how many albums do you have out under now? Either Nels that, Klein or Nels Klein singers or oh, I don't know. I, have, I don't know. I mean, I'm not that many, really. You know, I, I play on more Rdo records than I, than I have led. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? There, there are lots of those what I call the accidental releases, yeah. where I do some improvising. You know, whether it was is with uh, like Tal McDonough or whether it's with Whiteout or, or uh, you know, God, uh, there's that record called Four Guitars Live in Brooklyn with mm-hmm. with Thurston Moore, Carlos Chifoni, and Lee Ronaldo and me. That was a complete accident. Right. Somebody happened to have a good recording, so it ended up coming out on important records yeah. a while back. So there are those, so yeah, lots yeah. of those. And, and, but as far as my own records, there aren't that many, really. I haven't okay. been super uh, prolific. I'm not like John Zorn or, right. Uh, right. Uh, and I don't have that 
I don't, I just don't feel prolific as a composer or a leader, but I do play on a lot of records. Right. And actually, I've totally lost count. It's got to be about 200 by now. Uh, that you've planned? That I've played, played on. Oh, played on. Yeah. Sometimes it's like two or three tracks, but some yeah. singer songwriter that, that is a friend of a friend or somebody I admire and they ask me to play on a few songs. Mm. And there's a lot of those things. And then the accidentally improvising. I was reading today, there's one where you were on a record with like Willie Nelson, but you didn't get to play with him or? I never met something. Willie Nelson. Yes. That was a Carla Boslich record yeah. that he heard when it was in its, uh, uh, raw form where uh, she covered the entire Redhead Stranger album with, in a new way with, mm-hmm. with basically the singers as her backing band. Nice. Was in, with Devin Hoff, our previous bassist, Scott and me, and then a few guests, Jenny, Jenny Scheinman on some tracks, mm-hmm. and uh, Carla Boslich's sister, Leah, sang some backup vocals. Um, but then Willie heard it and said, uh, a friend of mine played it for him on his bus. Yeah. You know, and he was probably, you know, getting puffy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and he said, I want to play along with that. Yeah. And so at some point, Carla got a call to come to Austin tomorrow. It was like, can you come to Austin tomorrow? I was on tour, right. probably with Scott or somebody okay. or with Jenny Scheinman. I don't know who I was playing with, but uh, I couldn't go. And Carla went and then. Uh, she and I tried to go see Willie and give him a gift and thank him. And ne- I never, never saw him. Yeah. She never saw him after that. <laughs> I saw him walk by at Farm Aid a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> when Wilco was You there. sort of can't miss him. Like, I've actually yeah. shot him before. And it's like you stand in front and it's like, yeah, that's that's Willie Nelson. Yep, it's, it sure is. It's, he's, he's diminutive in stature, but giant. Yeah. Well, I mean, the same, honestly, well, actually, you're pretty, pretty tall. Same could be said about you. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was distinctive guitar. Uh, Well, Willie's, Willie really owns distinctive guitar. Well, Willie does. Uh, among others. People like, you're from California. Uh, at some point, I want to talk about the dead a little bit and see how that influenced you. But Garcia, very distinctive. But you can, if you're on a record, you hear it, there is nobody now that hears that and is like, that, that's you. I'm surprised by this because I think of myself as being sort of um, uh, by necessity chameleonic uh-huh. because I play so many different kinds of things and I just try to fit in. Yeah. You know, so I do have a few things that I picked up along the way that became my sound, but I don't even use them all the time. Right. I played in this duo with Julian Lodge. I can't do the wiggle because I don't have a, <laughs> I don't have a tremolo bar. Where, so. where, where did the wiggle come from? Well, that's a really good question because I used to have really fast, itchy, nervous vibrato, which was very sixties mm-hmm. vibrato when I was young. Yeah. And it was because I was super nervous and hyper, I think. <laughs> and I could do it. So yeah. I had that Yorma Kaukin and yeah. uh, John Cipollino, although he used the, the bar, I think, but, yeah. but Yorma could do with his hands uh-huh. and Tom Verlaine as well. I think it's a Tom Verlaine thing where I, I heard Tom Verlaine ref, sort of reflecting Cipollina mm-hmm. and I thought somehow to do it one day and it felt, I guess, emotionally like it was saying what I needed to say. Right. It was definitely something that was a weird accident that I ended up embracing and uh, uh, a friend of my wife and mine who's uh, a French woman uh, named Sophie came to hear Wilco in Paris mm-hmm. and she said uh, sometimes when you bl- play guitar it sounds like Piaf and I thought what? Is she insane? It's just like yeah. you know this is impossible and I thought it's the wiggle it's, yeah. this, it's that, that fast vibrato mm-hmm. that's really something more of the 30s and 40s than uh, 
than now, although it's kind of come back a little bit. With a certain few singers, and of course, in the yeah. '60s, there was the the more unattractive version for my taste, like Melanie and Buffy St. Marie. Mm-hmm. Can you guys all hear the people doing vocal warm up yeah, exercises yeah. outside? Sort of like that. There's multiple productions going on yeah, here yeah. tonight, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, that's I, it. Just sort of happened, you know, like yeah. like playing with a lot of pedals just sort of happened. Yeah I, did, yeah, I didn't start doing that willfully. It just sort of heaped up over time yeah yeah but you you struck a fine balance between like technique and then technical mastery um that you don't see i think it, it, the level that you're doing it too much i mean even just in the soundtrack we just saw you know it's like you feed stuff into something and all of a sudden you're playing a box instead right. of a guitar but at the same right. time well, i think you're playing the guitar it's still it's all sound to me. yeah so my whole thing is sound even though i love the guitar mm-hmm. but the electric guitar as we know is extremely malleable i mean you can yeah. do so much with it you can actually have option anxiety as john abercrombie <laughs> once termed it in an <laughs> interview like just changing the string gauges changes the sound so yeah. so it is it's pretty vast but I, I just figured out that i could imagine i think what to do with these things and and then sound would come out that was close to what I was imagining, you know, or, mm-hmm. or sometimes I think, uh, why do I like a sound that approximates being like lacerated by a thousand blades or something? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I do. Yeah. So I, I go for that and it's, I think maybe for catharsis or some kind of non-musical parameter sure. or impulse, you know, but, but I do have this kind of, you know, I guess it's a little bit of a strident uh, and possibly harsh aesthetic where certain sounds are concerned. But I like to balance that with Mm -hmm. playing ballads and playing things that are uh, maybe more conventionally beautiful. To me, it's all about beauty, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you can come out of um, of some like just hellacious like noise sculpture that you've created, and then just hit a beautiful like G chord. Right. And then rings, well, that's and the like, adult me. Yeah. <laughs> it took me 50 some years to hit that G chord. Yeah. Uh, unless it was a G minor chord. Then it was my first 35 years. Yeah. But, but now I can actually embrace a major chord. Nice. So when did you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> when, when in your playing were, were you really sucked into like the, the jazz end of things as opposed to rock? Well, I don't know if I was sucked into it as a, as a, well, a player as, uh, yeah. who uh, accomplished that, but it was in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in uh, high school and started out listening to what we now call fusion, but it was really yeah. jazz rock and or electric jazz and all these things. And I was listening to progressive rock at this point. Mm-hmm. Dwayne Allman had died. I was crushed. Yeah. I sort of turned my back on blues rock at that point and, and, Got into progressive rock and early weather report, Herbie Hancock, Miles, of course, because John Coltrane had been my sort of uh, entry into the world of so-called jazz Mm -hmm. when I heard this piece, Africa. And uh, so then I had catching up to do. Right. So uh, as I, I guess, embraced and investigated that realm, I thought I needed to sort of discover what, I guess the tradition, as we might call it, yeah. uh, involved. And it took a long time, I think, to get more conversant with the artists and the repertoire of that right. uh, so-called traditional milieu. But um, as guitar goes, I jumped into listening to a lot of so-called straight-ahead guys. Yeah. And that's when I started listening to 
uh, Wes and Django and, and, uh, you know, in California, I could go hear Joe Pass and Herb Ellis duo. Yeah. They had done this brilliant Concord jazz record called Seven Come Eleven, and they had real chemistry to my mind, you know, and I haven't listened to that record in a long time, but, but seeing them live was, was not only, uh, inspiring and a, and a little bit daunting but it was also kind of fun they had a a lightness you know mm-hmm. about what they were doing that was the opposite of my normal impulse yeah. so then i started going to hear pat martino and listening to pat martino and and uh and from the very beginning um you know early pat Metheny with the gary burton yeah, quintet absolutely. so i saw him many times and and i befriended ralph towner and john abercrombie and uh kind of worshiped them mm-hmm. uh in the seventies and, but they're not really jazz jazz, I guess, or as we say, jazzy jazz. Right. But, uh, I was never that much of a jazzy jazz guy in those days, but I think that's where it started. Yeah. It took a long time for me to get closer to the tradition and, and, and understand it a little more. Right. It was a slow process. Okay. The, um, like since then, and you mentioned fusion. So, I mean, I think that's what a lot of people, refer to some of these records as i don't know what they call these records well you know fusion's one of those great yeah. meaningless terms yeah, yeah, at this yeah. point but it still seems to mean something to people to the point where they they cringe and shudder yeah when say yeah, fusion. yeah 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 <laughs> um given that like jazz can be both like compositional mm-hmm. and improv mm-hmm. do you prefer one side to the other do you see no it? no no i love that combination yeah i mean i i strive for that balance in my band and in my own music, but I feel sometimes that tonight I worry tonight that mm-hmm. there's too much of of my direction and not enough spontaneity. Right. You know, there will be spontaneous moments sort of programmed into the set, especially when you have a set length that's hard. You just yeah. think like, oh man, what if? You know, my favorite story about this is when John Doe and uh, yeah. DJ Bonebreak from X asked yeah. the singers to open for X at the Fillmore one night on one of their reunion tours. And we only had a half hour. We were the first of three bands. And uh, and one of the pieces that we're going to play tonight was the opening piece. And I looked at my watch, and we had something like eight minutes left, and we'd still only played the first song. <laughs> and I thought, oops. You know, it's hard to program improvised music in a tiny space. Yeah. But, but uh, And my internal clock died years ago. Yeah. But I like the combination uh, of structure uh, direction, total freedom. Um, composition to me is very much based, uh, I guess, paradoxically in this kind of a setting on pieces that are very, to my mind, kind of designed to create an effect or an emotional mm-hmm. response or some kind of fascinating atmosphere or immersive atmosphere. And then pieces where they're just catalysts for improvisation where we, yeah. I don't have to be a didactic, directing, controlling, individual you know although those are the controlling directed ones are usually my favorite ones to listen to over and over again right right because they're more about composition and yeah absolutely i mean at their best yeah they're, they're i mean there's something to be said i mean it's also a difference i think between or it can be a difference between uh seeing a live performance or hearing something on record yeah that's the other weird paradox yeah. about improvising particularly you know you have these recordings that are basically captured jams in the moment mm-hmm. that you know, kind of blue. How many people out there can sing every solo on that record? Yeah. Lots. Yeah. You know, including yours truly, probably. Yeah. Um, but they're just jams. You yeah. know, uh, it's a weird dichotomy, the whole recording improvised music or 
you hear Eric Dolphy on that, that famous recording saying, you know, music, it goes out in the air and it disappears forever. And it's like, wait, he just recorded him saying this. Yeah. Even that hasn't disappeared, right. you know, and right. nor have these recordings. Uh, yeah, it's a little odd. Do you have any trouble slipping back and forth between like that world and the more the mainstream world of like Wilco or rock? I mean, you've done stuff with Sonic I, Youth, which is. Yeah, but Obviously no. Not mainstream, but I don't, and I, and I get asked that a lot. But the answer yeah. is no, and I don't know what's up with that. But I'm cool with not having it be a problem because everything else I overthink and make yeah. it into a problem. <laughs> so it's nice to have one thing that I do all the time that doesn't seem to pose a problem. I mean, do you think it's it's just it has to do with like having an understanding of music, like in general? Like, yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I play with people I like and I play right. music I like, but, but I think I know, for the most part, I know my role in the music. Mm-hmm. Not always. Sometimes I come into situations where I don't really know what to play. It, it happens every once in a while. And the person maybe that I'm working for or whose dreams I'm trying to make come yeah, true yeah. doesn't really know either. And that can become a, a little daunting, but generally I just try to slip in and, uh, and I never try to put some kind of stamp on right. what I'm doing. I just try to to fit in and learn the song and fit in. And actually, frankly, music is not easy for me. I, right. I, I struggle and I'm just trying to do the right thing, I guess, in a way. Yeah. Uh, and then sometimes they say, wow, I thought he was going to be the weird man and like do all the wild stuff, you know, yeah. but I'm just trying to maybe learn and, and fit into the song. Sure, and if sure. they want me to, to destroy the song, yeah. you know, later I'll <laughs> yeah. do it after I know right, it, right. but I'm not going to do it first thing. Right. You know? Right. But sometimes I think people think I'm going to come in and just do something really wild right away. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just not, that's not me at all. Like fire will shoot out of the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Here's a sound you've never ever thought you would hear <laughs> right. on this song. You just wrote. Does that work for your song? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, I want to honor these people's work first sure. you know, by just trying to get inside it. Sure. You know? I mean, you said like you said music like doesn't really like come easy to you. is that like do you, you think that's because of the way you think of it? Like if if you if you're just like if you're if you're looking at it, you know, like like how you know, you said you just make this like sort of beautiful noise. Yeah. You know? I think that for one thing I get nervous. Yeah. I don't get stage fright nervous, but I get tight. You know, when mm-hmm. something's too important, I just don't play as fluidly yeah. because I get tense. I get just, and sometimes when I get tense, the next level of tense is brain freeze. Yeah. And so I just don't have that, uh, immediacy and that sort of calm fluidity that right. a lot of people seem to have. And I also know many musicians for whom I have to say music is like breathing for them. Yeah, and it's yeah. not like it's trivial. It actually is who they are, yeah. but it's not like a struggle. It doesn't seem like a struggle to me. Anyway. Right. Uh, Pat Sansone of Wilco is one of these guys. <laughs> um, uh, Julian Lodge certainly is mm-hmm. like, it's a virtuoso version of that. Uh, but also the musical version of that. Um, uh, yeah. Some, you know, Jim Black or, uh, Many people that come to mind. I get to play with a lot of really good people. Yeah. So, uh, so I know whereof I speak. Yeah. <laughs> I know what it feels like to to play next to these people and ha- and listen to them and watch them just with ease, just do insane things and yeah. play insane, be- beautiful, advanced, whatever, some kind of crazy, beautiful stuff. In, in your experience, does that come from being like, uh, and are you like well 
would you consider yourself like well versed in like theory? Like you can just sit there and like, I did learn theory. I'm not a wizard theory person, but I did learn theory. That's all the musical instruction I've had that was effective. I never had a guitar teacher that taught me anything because I didn't have them for very long. And Mm -hmm. and the ones that I did have almost destroyed me forever. So I don't have to tell you to play something. You were like, no, I'm not going to play that or no, no, it's a long story. I won't go into it. They, They weren't teaching properly actually it turns out that they were completely insane but but (laughs) and i thought it was me but anyway so it took me 40 years almost to figure out that it really wasn't necessarily me uh but no, it's just watch the way I play. I don't. I didn't learn technique. Yeah, on no, guitar. yeah, no. I have. A, I play like it's, a spaz. Well, it's it's weird because you, like I have watched the way you play like quite a bit. Like we were talking about the show at the Black Cat. Uh, we were there, and it was this thing come out, and it sounds like uh, just a wall of like chaos, and then all of a sudden, and it. it it hits an audience and it switches and everybody locks in and gets it. And then all of a sudden it really looks like, you know what you're doing. Oh. <laughs> you're just well, like, I'm and it's amazing I though. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an amazing thing, but I mean, but I'm just talking about technique. Like look at yeah. Julian Lodge play, you know, look, look at his hand, look at his left hand going up and down the oh, fingerboard, yeah. you know, and then look at my hand going up and down the fingerboard. You know, I had a, a, a moment when I was first becoming friends with Julian where I said, I'm, I'm so totally sick of myself i'm so sick of my playing i'm sick of listening to what i play i play the same crap forever everyone thinks i have a technique but to me it's just bad habits sped up over time and it sounds impressive and i just wanted to go to another level he said well give me an example of one of your what you think is one of your habitual you know licks or whatever so i tried to remember one and i I played it and he said well you know think of it this way you could always just completely invert it and he just took it and he played it completely inside (laughs) out and then i said that's great, Julian. That's not going to happen. Yeah. I have no idea what he did, right. how to do it. I, it's just is how he learned, yeah. but it's also how he thinks because he's brilliant. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a, a natural, and so I don't, I didn't have that direction. I didn't have that maybe enough curiosity. I wasn't trying to be the greatest guitar player in the world. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to play music I like. Yeah. you know, all the time, right? Because that's the only way I can make a living playing it. So, and I like playing. Yeah. So. Uh, so I, I hear somebody like Julian, of course, I have a duo with him now and I, I play next to him, which I guess is potentially humiliating, but it's very inspiring as well. Sure. And, and we, what we're doing is not competing. We're sharing Yeah. and we're sharing an aesthetic. We're sharing music making. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever done, but truly he just does astonishing things. And sometimes I just end up kind of almost guffawing on stage. Right. Right. He'll play something and I go like, <laughs> oh, oh man what <laughs> have you seen him play no i haven't oh, i haven't okay. i need to though right. um <laughs> i i mean that's good to hear you say that because i mean i think a lot of people would again think people are up there and i mean like yeah we've got this and, and like it's all and it's like oh, and it's, it's a it's a communicative thing like and, and it is like you know watching people you play and like you said you're sharing right like how to do that and that's, I mean, in my experience, how musicians like learn. Like you keep playing. You've had the opportunity yeah, yeah. to play with all these people, and well, I used to just play and let it go. You know, mm-hmm. I'd have when I was young, I just I would be so nervous I couldn't even tune up in in a, in a yeah in a club situation. I'd be before tuners, of course, sure. and uh, uh, but now 
and you know, in the last few years, I would just play and just say, "Hey, man, it's done. I just gave it away. I'm not going to worry about. It. I'm not going to get super dark. Every once in a while, you get really dark. Mm-hmm. You do something horrendous. But now everything you do is on YouTube, so you actually yeah. could be sanguine about something you thought was kind of iffy, and yeah. then it's on YouTube forever. Well, that kind of makes me unhappy too, because I just think, "Oh my God." Thank you, YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> I can, how many views? Oh, thank God. Only 17. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, get, that, that gets into the, you know, the public perception of stuff because, you know, if, if that when they got 17, got all of a sudden a million and they were all like, this is great. Right. This has gone what? viral. Listen how bad he's. I was trying to sing this one song in our last tour that I did on the record. It's called Respira, but it's not written mm-hmm. to be sung. I guess live by somebody who can't sing like me. So because at the range is vast yeah. and I'm not used to singing that kind of stuff live. So it starts really quiet and really low. And then, then there's higher stuff that's louder. So you can, I can hear that in the monitor. You just can't hear it all. Right. So there's some really bad, really bad singing on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, trying to sing this song with not hearing myself in the monitor, apparently horrendous, like just horrendous. So I'm not even going to sing that song anymore. I was so shamed. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so the trio that you've been playing with, um, how long have you been playing with these guys? Well, the singers started 14 years ago, but okay. with Devin Hoff on bass. Mm-hmm. And then Devin departed almost four years ago now, I okay. guess. He did about 10 years there. And Scott's been along the whole time. Scott Amendola, who uh, is a man I heard uh, in the 90s when he played at a concert series I used to have on Monday nights in Santa Monica, mm-hmm. California, at a place called the Alligator Lounge. So my old trio would play would anchor this and play every mm-hmm. Monday when when I wasn't on tour with Mike Watt or the Geraldine Fibbers and uh, and I would book improvisers and it was a really lovely thing for about four years yeah. and Scott came in with this uh, woodwind player from the Bay Area named Philip Greenleaf right and I admired his playing greatly and so uh, gradually over time I got a car that could go to the Bay Area and he and I became kind of closer friends and played together in a, an improvising quartet called stink bug with nice. g.e stinson and Stuart liebig and then he kept bugging me to start a band and so i finally said Fit well me. if if i get a car that'll be able to drive to oakland <laughs> does this mean you'll be the drummer in the band he right. said yes so i finally got a car that could make the trip and so 14 years now of this yeah. and i think i did about seven years with my previous trio well with Michael Preussner on drums and Bob Mayer on bass, and originally this man named Mark Mark London Sims on bass. Okay, and you guys just put out recently, I think this year, Macroscope. Yep, yep. And then, is there anything uh, different from the uh, initiate? Initiate was the initiate. One that? that was the one before that. Well, besides Trevor being on it. Um, all my records uh, with the singers, except for maybe the first one, Instrumentals, um, have a guest or two. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a little more of a guest presence on Macroscope. And uh, my wife, Yuka Honda's playing keyboards on some stuff. Ciro Baptista, who mm-hmm. I'm trying to make a permanent member of my band, yeah. uh, uh, is on it. Josh Jones plays Kungas. Zena Parkins plays electric harp. Um, on Initiate, we had David Witham on electric piano and uh, members of Deerhoof on one of the live tracks playing percussion and running around like crazy people. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, Greg Saunier yeah. does a vocal turn on the giant pin on, yeah. for about 20 seconds. Um, uh, Glenn Kochi from Wilco is on Draw Breath. Uh, John Bryan is on the giant pin. But the but Macroscope has more of a guest. I'm sort of trying to make the band not a trio anymore. Right. 
even though tonight it's a trio because Ciro is at the stone during doing his week's residency. Yeah. So we're we're Ciro-less tonight, and so it's back to the power trio, back to the to the little boys club of right <laughs> noise heads. But theoretically, uh, are, I mean, are you going to tour? more extensively for this record yeah we're gonna go to europe in march and that'll be with zero and it'll be a quartet nice yeah should come back to dc so i'd really like to see that well i I, you know if if i can do it i'll do it it's it's really hard to do everything and also just to schedule things with with not just me but my my comrades are busy busy people yeah you know you guys have all reached i think a point in in all your careers where you're i mean you know you're in wilco so there's that. That's kind of the number one. It's like, what do they call it? Job one. Yeah. That's like my priority because I right. sort of signed on and said I'll make it my priority. But right. they also assist me in, you know, booking gigs like this or, you know, I'm. they help me get my gigs. So yeah. It's, it's a really unusual situation. Yeah. I mean, it, well, I mean, you came in and like solidified that latter Wilco band. Sound. Ten years now. Yeah, it's ten, ten years, years now. It's it's you know if you think about something like the solo, Shocking. yeah, <laughs> actually that is now I feel old. Because um, if you think about like say the solo in Impossible Germany, that that's not something, regardless of who wrote the solo, that's not something that band was capable of before you came in. Right. Well, <clears throat> that's the whole story of that song is hilarious. But but I feel that because I actually you know that was a song that existed before Pat and I joined. Mm-hmm. But on a demo that never went anywhere, like Jeff never really, it right. never found its groove or whatever. So I had an idea what to do with that song, which is the exact opposite of what it ended <laughs> up being, which was that it was going to be this worked out guitar stuff, kind of like the Dreams Dream by Television, yeah. where Jeff and I were going to, because I'm trying to get Jeff to play more guitar all the time. Right. It's like, and then Jeff and I were going to work out all this stuff, and I had these melodies worked out, and I said, man, it'll be really cool going into a long instrumental at the end, it'll be like the Dreams Dream. So I started showing him these melodies, and he, I think he started getting nervous that I was going to show him too many melodies that he was going to have to learn. <laughs> he was thinking like, oh, man, I don't know. But then he started picking them apart, and then Pat picked up his guitar. who hadn't, He hadn't played guitar in the band yet right. at all, I don't think. He picked up a guitar, and they started working on those harmony parts. They started picking apart my melodies. And two and a half hours went by while they worked on this. And then they looked all like little kids, like super happy, like, hey, check this out. What do you think? And I said to Jeff, I said, well, what do I do now? He said, just solo, which is the exact opposite. I didn't want, I wanted no guitar solo. It was all going to be worked out parts. And that's what happened. And so I played the solo on a demo and then we went to record it for the album. And Jeff said, I really hate to ask you this, but... I really love the solo you played on the demo. Do you mind like playing right. some of the ideas from that? And so that's kind of what it's turned out to be is this semi, you know, uh, written. Yeah, semi written. Even though I didn't write yeah. it out, I wrote it out to relearn it. Right. But, uh, and then half improvised sort of, you know, guitar foray, shall we say. But my point being, rather than to just say that it's a guitar foray and how it came mm-hmm. about is to say what an incredible gift to my life to now be, you know, on this recording and playing this song live. That's kind of something you don't really hear much anymore, which is kind of the, the guitar foray. No. That's not, I hope like 
pure wank, you know, it's, no, it's, 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 it's actually, hopefully I'm, I'm striving for eloquence, you know, it, I mean? it's not, it's, I mean, back, back to Dwayne, back to Dwayne Allman. I mean, uh, you know, clearly like if you listen to something like any of the solos on, uh, Layla and other sort of love songs, right. like I think for a generation, I think for you know, Quinn's generation, I think that is their like touch point an equivalent analog to that. Well, actually, a friend of mine named Stuart Liebig is a great bass player in L.A. who I've played with on and off since the 70s. He heard Impossible Germany on the radio driving at his day job mm -hmm. and wondered if it was me. Uh, didn't really know Wilco that well at right. that point. And so he wrote to me and he said, like, it's really funny, but I was listening to this and, it, you know, what you were playing really reminded me in some ways although I could hear the Tom Verlaine thing that you love so much of Dickie Betts. And I said, man, no one has said this, but it's exactly what I thought really? when I heard it back. The tone even is yeah. very Dickie, not the vibrato because right, I'm doing right, the right. wiggle or whatever. But, but I, I, I think of it as being more Dickie than, than Dwayne and more Dickie than, than Verlaine and whatever yeah. in a way. Uh, I don't know. That stuff's all in there. I never knew yeah, I'd join yeah. a, a, a kind of like eminent rock band and then tap into my 14 and 15 year old like, <laughs> you know, reservoir of inspiration. But that's kind of, uh, in a way, it's kind of wondrous to, to do that. Like, you know, you were going to ask yeah. me about the Grateful Dead. I've been yeah. doing these gigs with Phil Lesh and friends, a couple or three this year. Yeah. And then the stuff that Wilco did with Bob Weir. Yeah. Um, never thought I would do any of this stuff. Right. And and my brother was the Grateful Dead guy when they were psychedelic. He bought the first record when it was new. Sure, sure. We were kind of disappointed it wasn't more psychedelic. But then Anthem of the Sun came out. And we're like, wow, okay. This is really psychedelic. Yeah. And Live Dead, which Absolutely. was our favorite at that time. But then when, when Working, Man Dead, Working Man's Dead came out, my brother's like, mm, nope. <laughs> this, is like, this is your thing, yeah. you know what I mean? And it's the one, the only times we switched allegiance to record buying because <laughs> right. we had we listened to everything together. Sure, sure, sure. But, and then, but, but like that, you know, he that bought, was it. He, he bought the Jethro Tull records. I bought the Traffic <sighs> records. Whatever. We listened to yeah. all of them together, right? Mm -hmm. But he jumped ship on the Dead at that point, and I embraced Working Man's Dead wholeheartedly. Yeah, and uh, and of course, then American Beauty, and then. Uh, you know, kind of stopped thinking about their music after 72, frankly. I was going sure. in another direction. But now I have to play these songs I hadn't sure. even know. Well, there's a, there's a lot to be said about, like, what, <laughs> what you play with the singers and the trio and stuff. That if, if I've told people before, I don't know if there was an album that came out. Um, it was meant, it was in the 80s. It was meant to sort of introduce, I guess, the audience to space. You know, a dead show called Infrared Roses. Hmm. And there's a lot in what you do that sounds like that. And that's sort of what I was interested in finding out is that if if you pulled anything from that, because there was a lot of experimentation that just didn't end up on a record. Okay. Well, know? I saw them live in 71, and their second half of their show started out with at least a good half hour of free improvisation. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were, my brother and I were kind of already interested in mm -hmm. that. So it wasn't like it blew our minds. Right. It was revolutionary. But, but I think like Sonic Youth and the way Sonic Youth had uh, a lot of very avant-garde people mm -hmm. open for them, they basically spread a kind of consciousness and awareness, yeah. uh, whether it was by design or it was just, just because they were inspired and just thought, well, hey, you know, there's people there. This is what we do. We don't. We're not going to change right. our ideas because people seem to be patient enough. Right, you know? right. So, you know, in the 70s, that wasn't weird. In the 60s, no. that was maybe a little bit challenging. In the 70s, it wasn't weird at all. Because uh, I, uh, 
basically formed the idea of what I wanted to do aesthetically mm-hmm. as a young person in the 70s, hearing people like, you know, obviously the Allman Brothers, I, I heard them with Dwayne, uh, yeah, and, the, and the dead, but also hearing, you know, early weather report and Herbie Hancock yeah. in a tiny jazz club and hearing, you know, uh, we were talking about before hearing Jack DeJohnette's directions with John Abercrombie and Lester Bowie or whatever, these different things that we're embracing and thinking, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Which was completely possible to do and would seem to be embraced by even Americans in the seventies. But that really changed in the Reagan years. Absolutely. Everybody started playing tinier and tinier places and, or only playing in Europe yeah, and yeah. Japan or, you know what I mean? Uh, but that still is how, that's what formed me. Yeah. Is that, that sort of vastness and that sort of, uh, nascent sort of, uh, uh I guess that freedom, that kind of, uh, it, it's not naive, but it was, it was, uh, but still, it, it was uncynical, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, and radio then was unformatted too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, in the '80s, everything became so formatted along, not just aesthetic lines, but I think racial lines. Yeah. And so there's like a million different charts, and I think it carved up the universe musically. And it's only now when I look at the opportunity to uh, get up in front of a bunch of people with like, let's say Phil Esch. The first two times I played with him, John Modeski with whom I'd played with Modeski, Martin and Wood mm-hmm. and John Schofield were in the band. And John Schofield is, yeah. you know, one of my guitar idols of yeah. all time. He's amazing. Just as a composer as well. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's a marvel. So just like playing, you know, with the Yoko Ono plastic Ono band, which I do, or these things, could I have ever envisioned this? When I was right. in the seventies, right, no. <laughs> thinking of all these people as unattainable gods, yeah. you know what I mean? No way, you know. And so, but beyond that, the fact that these aesthetics have merged mm-hmm. and that time has, I guess, smoothed. Like uh, uh, I think it was my wife who said that it's, it's like it's like when water runs over rocks for so long they become smooth mm-hmm. it's like the the time as water has smoothed all these edges and any thorniness or divisiveness or uh defensiveness over time and then g- gradually we lose our i guess our our kind of uh what do you want to call it it's like a, a where we're carving up the universe to yeah. differentiate ourselves from others. And it becomes an all, more all-embracing thing. Yeah. We start to feel commonality. We start to sense yeah. commonality. And then everybody seems more relaxed. And yeah. even in where I live in New York City, uh, I know it's just a huge like corporate uh, playground for the rich in Manhattan at this point in a way. Mm. But one of the nice things about it being from California is that it's – really far more pleasant even though i didn't want it to be pleasant i've always loved new york and but i didn't even know how to order coffee there when Mm -hmm. i visit there in the 70s or whatever but you know people would just be barking at me and i'd be all scared but everybody's really really nice yeah because i feel that there's just a lot of water going under that bridge Mm -hmm. and and people have less to gain from being really I guess, defensive and critical and judgmental. Yeah. But I do think that, of course, 
you know, people in their late teens and early twenties, that's sure. what they're going to do. Well, sure. I mean, that's you have, what you I have, did. You have, to have, you have to have your identity <laughs> and that sort of, and like you're, you're talking you about things that shaped you, but yeah, stuff. but you have to exist in opposition to things too. If, yeah. And also you think, you know, everything. Yeah. And I think, I think some, I think the internet has done something where it has, has facilitated this to a point because mm. you, you had to seek out, I mean, even when I was a kid, like you had to seek out like records and you can only get certain ones. So you, you decide what you're going to do and, you, oh, exactly. and, this is, and then you do this now yeah. it's all there. It's so all if there, somebody yeah. wants to listen to, you know, a black metal album and then somebody wants to listen to miles Davis and then somebody wants to, they can do that all right. within an hour. Right. And like I said, it smooths things over. It's, but I think that, well, it becomes more holistic, I guess yeah. is the word that would make people bristle. Um, uh, which I think that, that for me, even with my uh, camping out divisive brain as in my early 20s, I still wanted that mm-hmm. because I didn't fit into anything specifically. No one tradition, no one scene. Yeah. You know, I was just sort of like, like getting into all this stuff. All right, cuisine has arrived. Did, did uh, we get Toki? And, uh, uh, <laughs> seriously? Yeah. yeah. Well, the place is tiny. Yeah. See, when I was here three years ago with Shibamata, we went there at something like five or yeah. something. Yeah. And yeah. also, they had just opened. Nobody <laughs> was there. Amazing. Was, we Smelled amazing. <laughs> Go there. <laughs> you guys remember Judy, right? Did you see her on your way? Yeah, on our way? In? Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, so. Yeah. Anything else? No, I think I think food is here. <laughs> food is here. Uh, oh, but what I was going to say is that. My example of the, like the power of people feeling less alone, and I'm now I'm having a mental block on his name, but he's the, he's the man who uh, grew up in South Dakota. Help me out here. He had uh, the desire, uh, the, the, the weird um, desire might even be, not even be the right expression for it, but he had an urgent need to hang himself from hooks in in his barn, basically by the flesh, which is the Sioux Sun ceremony. Okay. It's a, uh, uh, um, he has, it's, he also did this thing like the perfect gentleman where he made his waist, the, he cinched in his waist. Yeah. And of course yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like, like it's super tiny. I mean, he must've felt like the most alone person. Yeah. Some friends of mine made a documentary about him, uh, but he must have felt like the most alone person in the world. Now, if you said, God, I really feel like driving hooks through my flesh and hanging myself <laughs> in my barn from my skin, you could f- immediately find out this is the Sioux Sun ceremony. Yeah. And so-and-so does Would this. Would you like to blah, see the scene in Austin, Paris, <laughs> Germany? <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, so I think that, that while people may whine about, like, when I, why back in my day, mm-hmm. if I wanted to find that super rare 12 inch by Johnny Osborne mm-hmm. on green sleeves, I had to go to every record store in America when I was on tour. And even then they didn't even know what I was talking about. And now you just go, you just do a search, right? Yeah. Well, okay, that's bad. But the other thing is that if you feel alone, super isolated, and you might actually kill yourself because you think you're going crazy because you want to do something that that you feel is too weird, Mm -hmm. you can actually find out that tons of people are just like you. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a very good thing. And I'm not a joiner, and I'm also not a rebel. I just feel like uh, I want people to, to feel okay about being alive and not have people get up in their grill about being different, you know? Yeah. 
Very Maybe good. that's my final statement for this yeah. evening. All right. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Nels. Thank it's you, great. Kevin. Uh, and and uh, Quinn over there on the laptop. Yep. All right. It's time to dine. Dine. Thanks a lot, man. That's great. your podcast with one Nels Klein. I hope you enjoyed that as much as Quinn and I enjoyed sitting down with uh, the good Mr. Klein. Uh, I might just hang up the mic now because that was uh, it was one of the, one of the big ones that I wanted to talk to as a guitar player, as a music fan, as a fan of all the music he's done. I was like, you know, uh, when we start ramping up these interviews, uh, sort of made a list of names of people. We wanted to get, and he was high on that list. Uh, so, and uh, and also it turns out one one of the most enjoyable interviews that we've done. Uh, had real, no real doubts there, but you never know what to expect. You know, I will cop to being nervous of shit, nervous of shit going into it. Uh, but I think it all turned out okay. Uh, I don't know. You tell me. Leave some comments. Say you need to get off the mic, Hill, or whatever. Uh, at any rate. Thanks again to uh, Nels. Uh, thanks to Russ, his tour manager. Uh, really, you know, carved out some time for us to do this. Uh, much appreciated. Um, Nels said up front, and you get him, you know, get him started on a question. You can probably talk for two hours about music. Uh, that's certainly true. If he had not needed to play a show, or uh, in fact, in his case, eat. Uh, I think we could have gone on for quite a while there. So, uh, Nels, if you're listening and ever want to come back on, uh, just give us a ring. Come over. We'll cook you dinner or something. Um, but, yeah, so that was that. Uh, that is about our podcast for this week. Uh, next week, or actually by the end of this week, uh, you will hear a podcast on Pink Floyd as promised. I will tell you as a lifetime Floyd fan, uh, I really, really love this album. But... It's not just my opinion that counts. We have lots of other people. Uh, so hopefully I think it's going to be me, Adam, Paul, maybe Patrick, who you heard last week uh, for 100 Visions, uh, all talking about a band that uh, we love and, and their final album. So that's to look forward to. And some good stuff from uh, we did the Hometown Sounds podcast, uh, Astrovia. Got, got, got some stuff in the pipe always. So. Uh, as usual, thank you for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes if you choose. Uh, give us a rating there if you like it. If you've never heard the podcast and you're like, shit, that's good, give us a rating. Or if you're like, shit, that's bad, uh, give us a zero. It's still a rating. Or one, it's still a rating. Whatever, man. It just says you're listening to us. Uh, you can listen to us on Stitcher, uh, which is going to be on Deezer now. So it'll be like a streaming mu- music service. We'll be out there all over the place. Or you can just download it from the site. Uh, So thank you for listening, guys, and we will talk to you later on this week.